Now let's open our Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, as we begin the study of this magnificent sentence. Ephesians chapter 1, in the third verse. In an, in an enthusiastic expression of praise, the psalmist cries out in Psalm 72, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, the psalmist says. Blessed be his glorious name, or in, in, the, in the Hebrew um, mindset, that's blessed be him as a person, his person, because the name represented the person. Blessed be his glorious name. The psalmist doesn't say anything about blessing the psalmist's name. The psalmist is calling for the, the name of the Lord to be blessed forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. There is much that passes for praise today that is anything but. Hands wave, bands belt out music and the faithful sway in a way that is sometimes reminiscent of Woodstock, which we've celebrating the 40th anniversary of, without the drugs and the sex, of course. And it's called, when they do that, praise and worship. Now, let me acknowledge this much right up front, and please listen to me, especially if I just offended you by that last statement. It might be praise and worship. It may very well be. That's between the worshiper and God. Only God knows what's really going on in the soul of someone else. But here's the point. Just because individuals engage in a particular form, and that form has been labeled by its adherents as praise and worship, it does not automatically follow that the worshipers are in reality involved in biblical praise and worship. Now, this is such an important concept, I want to say that again. Just because individuals engage in a particular form, in a particular form, and that form has been labeled by the people who practice it as praise and worship, it doesn't automatically follow that the worshipers are in reality involved in biblical praise and worship. Again, they might be. They might be, but just because they have labeled it that, and the, it, the form doesn't make praise and worship. I mean, everybody's heard that term now. It's, I believe the term has been hijacked. The phrase praise and worship has been hijacked. If some, now, just don't answer this out loud because it's being taped now. But if someone was to ask you, if they went up to you and say, hey, listen, does your church do a lot of praise and worship? What are you probably going to say? You're probably going to say no. And that's unfortunate, because what you're doing is you're allowing them to have hijacked the term, because in your mind, what praise and worship means is you, you, you throw the songs up on there, every, every, nobody's got a hymnal in their hand, you wonder why we have hymnals, There's nobody's got a hymnal in their hand, so they're all waving, just like Woodstock. You know, I can't say a whole lot of difference between, anyway. <laughs> the thing is, some of the, some of the greatest terms in the scriptures have been hijacked. You bet we praise and worship. Absolutely. We just don't have rock bands and hands waving and people dancing in the aisle. Now, again, for the third time, they may be praising and worshiping. I don't know what that's an expression of with, with regard to their own souls. I've been in a few of those services, and I've wondered sometimes, you know, if, if, if I'm worshiping the same God that they're worshiping, but they might be. So we're not, we're not in any way 
saying that they, they, they can't be. But we just need to be careful in our allowance of others, even believers who we're in unity with, to define terms so rigidly that we can't now say that we praise and worship as well. Of course we praise and worship. You bet we praise and worship. We may as well quit if we don't. That's what we're here for. But it doesn't mean it's that particular form. Am I making sense? I hope I, hope I am. I'm infinitely more interested in a biblical model of praise and worship than I am with what our current postmodern Christian culture defines it as being. See, here's the point. We need to look at what the Bible says about praise and worship and how that works out in any individual culture, any individual church. That's their business. But we can't let the whole Christian culture say, this is what praise and worship is. And says, well, no, we, we don't do that. We don't speak in tongues. You know, we don't have healing services. We don't have people coming down doing that stuff. But it doesn't mean we don't praise and worship. Don't let anybody, don't, let, don't run away from those terms. That's what Paul is going to do in verses 3 through 15. He is going to get really with it when it comes to praising and worshiping. Now, it's not going to look anything like hand-waving. But in these verses, he is going to praise and worship God in a way that hardly anybody else ever has. At least in the scriptures. You've got to go back to some of the, some of the most wonderful of the Psalms to come close to what's going to happen in, in these verses that we begin to study tonight. Now, biblically, and this is so important, biblically, biblically, praise is an honest acknowledgement of who God is, of who God is and what he has done. Praise is an honest acknowledgement of who God is and what he has done. It originates in the understanding of God as creator and redeemer. Two things, creator and redeemer. When we praise God, when we worship God, we're recognizing two primary things, that he's our creator and that he's our redeemer or our savior, if you would prefer. He's creator and redeemer. God is the sovereign Lord who brought the world into existence in the first place. He acted through the agency of his son to both create and to provide a rescue once man had fallen in disobedience and rebellion. So he created, and then through the agency of his son, Jesus Christ, he provided a way out once we, in, in union with Adam, fell and sinned. And then thirdly, he acts through the agency of the Holy Spirit to provide for spiritual nourishment and refreshment for those who have received the free gift of salvation. So you see, he created in the first place, and then through the agency of his son, actually he, he creates and he provides for salvation, and then through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he provides for everything that we need after we're saved. And that's a pretty good deal, I think. Now the keys to praise and worship are an appreciation of grace and an understanding of the price that was paid for our salvation by Jesus Christ. We need to understand grace. And before we're really going to understand grace, we've got to understand the price that was paid for our salvation. Now listen ever so carefully. With very few exceptions in life, very few exceptions in life, the value of something to the individual is reflected in the price that was paid for it. The value of something to the individual is reflected and the price that was paid for it. If we're going to praise and worship, now forget all that other stuff. Forget, forget what the culture has defined as praise and worship. But if we're really going to praise and worship God, we need to remember that we were not redeemed with corruptible things, 
such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish. That's what we have to remember. We have to place an infinite value on our salvation. And we do. We value our salvation. I trust that we do. I trust that everyone who fought traffic to get here tonight, if you love the Lord enough to fight that traffic, I, I trust that you agree with this statement. We value our salvation above everything else we have in life. Our cars, our homes, even our own health, the clothes that are on our back, the food that we'll eat later on tonight or I've already eaten today. We value our salvation over all else because of the price that he had to pay for it. It came at a steep price. But that's not all. We also need to think of it this way. The price that he paid gives us an idea as to the value that he places upon you. Have you ever thought of that? We value our salvation above everything else because we know the price he had to pay for it. But think of this for a minute. The next time you're down in the dumps and you think that nobody loves you, that nobody even cares about you, that nobody even remembers you. And we all have those moments. Usually they come about 2 or 2.30 in the morning when, we've, when we can't sleep and everything seems to be, all the, the walls seem to be pressing in upon us. Remember this, that the price that he paid the price that he paid gives us at least some idea of the value that he places upon us. And that's huge. God loves you. For God so loved the world. That's not a children's verse. That's one of the most mature verses in the word of God. For God so loved the world. Another way to put it is God loved the world like this. I'm going to tell you, how did God love the world? God loved the world like this, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. So we value our salvation above all else because of the price that he paid. And the price that he paid gives us an idea as to the value that he places upon us as individuals. Not because there's any particular merit in us. That, that, I just wonder why. I've said this before many times. And those that know me know I've said it before. But I, I'm going to have to ask him when I get to heaven. Knowing. Knowing all you knew, because all knowledge with God is simultaneous. Knowing all that you knew about what it would cost if you created, and you still decreed to create. And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, because I love you. And I'm going to say, you love me that much? He's going to say, yeah, you'll never understand that. But that's it. Don't ever think anybody doesn't love you. Somebody already loves you, and that, that somebody is the infinite personal creator of the universe. You can't get any better than that. You really can't. If we truly understand and are honestly acknowledging God's matchless grace and the price paid to make it possible, don't forget that price. If we truly understand and are honestly, and again, this is where I don't know. I don't know how much of that other stuff, that what is called praise and worship, I don't know how much of that's honest or not. It's none of my business, really. What my, what, this, is my, this is my crusade tonight. I've got, I want to just make sure that people don't think that's all that praise and worship is. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing praise and worship. That's where we've gone wrong. That's where it is wrong, what they've done. And I, and I do have to say that in, in the spirit of unity and love. But that's wrong. But if we truly understand and are honestly acknowledging God's matchless grace and the price paid to make it possible, and, and we want to express that by waving our hands in the air, then fine, no problem. If you truly and honestly understand it and acknowledge it. 
But my point is that it is myopic indeed to limit the phrase praise and worship exclusively to that form. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Verse 3 is the opening phrase of a spirit-inspired expression of praise written to God by a man who knew something about it. This, this is just utterly phenomenal. In the Greek text, verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence composed of 202 words. It's not the only long sentence in Ephesians. There are eight such long sentences in Ephesians, or none, none quite this long. But of these eight, three of them are expressions of praise and prayer, just like this one's going to be. So, it, and by the way, it's not that unusual to have expressions of praise in the scriptures be extended sentences. And one of the reasons why is I think people just get wound up. They get excited. And they tend to go on sometimes. Well, this is, Paul is going to go on for a bit here, but it's divinely inspired. For centuries, for centuries, great exegetical minds have struggled over the structure of these verses, verses 3 through 14. And frankly, knowing that makes me feel a little better, as I surely struggle with the structure here as well. I quit counting at 42 different structures that outstanding minds over the course of the history of the church have come up with to see what in the world Paul is doing in these verses. It's absolutely phenomenal. So while I, I'm not going to get real dogmatic about what his structure is, because I think it's tough. It's really tough to do. But I will say this. It does appear, the structure here does appear to be organized around the three members of the Trinity. The Father is spoken of primarily in verses 4 through 6. The Father in verses 4 through 6. The Son in verses 7 through 12. And then finally, the Holy Spirit in verses 13 through 14. So at the very least, we're going to see the structure of these, uh, of these verses organized around, this, around Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. While the structure of these verses may be difficult to pin down, it doesn't mean that the sentence just rambles without any kind of form at all. If you've read ahead, you know what I mean. This is a tough sentence, isn't it? It's really hard, to, it's, it's really hard for a nine-second soundbite culture to follow this one. If, if you've read a lot of the literature that was written in the 1920s, maybe even a little bit before that with G.K. Chesterton, people like that, um, even getting on into C.S. Lewis, a lot, of, a lot of modern readers don't like that because the sentence structure is complex. Well, they were, they were complex thinkers as well. And, and because we live in a soundbite culture, we're just not used to complex sentences. So if you've had a hard time with this, don't feel bad. So did I. It's a difficult structure to pin down. But it doesn't mean that Paul is just rambling. It's just not as neatly divisible as some other aspects of Scripture are. But this is a spontaneous expression of praise to God. He opens this letter, and he is jazzed right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, he is spontaneous, and he is expressing praise. And I want to tell you, the praise that he expresses also expresses some of the, most, some of the deepest theology in all the Bible. So yes, you can praise and worship and not be superficial. This is very deep theology. And what happens, Paul is, is going to get started, and then it's almost like it's hard for him to stop. 
And he just, he's going to list all the reasons why God is blessed or why God is worthy to be praised. That's what he's doing. Harold Honer, the exegete, says this, The abundance of words does not denote verbosity, but instead is an attempt to use a multiplicity of words to praise God for his supernatural plan and acts that are almost beyond description. There are a lot of words here, but Paul gets on a roll. Now, there are not, there are not a lot of current cultural models for this, but this would be one. Essence is a summary. It's a summary of this whole anthem of praise. Now, it starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. Actually, I'm going to translate that, Blessed is, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first word in this, in this uh, verse is the word eulogetos, translated blessed. It's a verbal adjective which was often used to translate the Hebrew term barak or barakah, or baraka if you want to make it into an English word, which means to bless or the idea of blessing. Now, technically speaking, there is no verb to be in verse 1. That's why in your text, if you're looking at it right now, it's probably in italics. At least most of your Bibles should have that. But, but even though the, the verb to be is not actually there, it's not only legitimate, but it's mandatory that it be added, that it be supplied. That's just good rules of Greek translation. But it isn't there. In ter- it's, it's an ellipsis, and that's what the, the translators are showing you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New American Standard. Many supply the present optative and translate it something like, may God be blessed. And that's kind of what New American Standard seems to have done indicating a wish or a desire. It's my desire that God be blessed because of these things, or God be considered worthy of worship because of these things. And that's certainly valid, but it's more likely that we should use the present indicative. Blessed is God. And I'll show you why in just a moment. Blessed is God. And so some of your translations may say that. I know the New American Standard does not. Uh, Eulogetos carries the idea of speaking well of someone. Now, this is the Greek term. Baraka is the Hebrew term that, it's, that is uh, its, it's, its cousin in the Old Testament. Eulogetos carries the, the idea of speaking well of someone or the idea of being praiseworthy. Now, we do this all the time, whether we know it or not. We are always speaking good of somebody. Boy, wasn't, wasn't Meryl Streep really, really good in that Julia and Julia movie? Or... Didn't Robert De Niro do a great job of being that bad guy? Or didn't Brett Favre throw a fantastic pass? Or isn't Peyton Manning a tremendous quarterback? Or can't, can't Lance Bergman hit a fastball really, really well? Isn't he wonderful? See, those are expressions of praise. And we're speaking well of someone. And that's the most basic way that that term can be used. But in the New Testament, and this, should, this is very telling, in the, in the New Testament, this phrase is only used of God. It's only used of God. Although we praise people all the time, we should keep it all in perspective. And it's okay to praise people. And when somebody does something good, it's okay to praise them, but we need to keep it in perspective. There's absolutely nothing wrong with speaking well of someone or about someone, but we just need to remember that when anyone is compared with God, when, when God is in the sentence, we ought not to be, okay? because there is no comparison. So if God, is, if God is involved at all, we need to leave the praise of people out of it. We need to be very careful with that. God alone is worthy of that kind of eulogetos. 
Okay? He is the only one worthy. Blessed is God. When this phrase is used of God, the, the, the idea of blessing, when it's used of God, it means that God is praised, he's honored, or he's worshipped. When we bless God, it means that we are expressing worship of him. We are expressing worship of him. And that always got me in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament says that I bless you, Lord, that always bothered me because I think, how in the world can I bless God? That's because I didn't understand what the term really meant. When I am blessing God, it's an expression of worship. And now when God blesses us, it's something different. When God blesses us, he's showing us some form of favor, either material favor or spiritual favor, perhaps both. Often in the scriptures, we find the idea of happiness or success or an increase of earthly possessions being part of God's blessing. God blessed Abraham and. God blessed Isaac and. You see all these material blessings. But material blessings are just a part of it. Spiritual blessings are what are really, truly valuable. So Paul begins this anthem of praise by stating from the outset that God is first worthy to be spoken well of. He's worthy to be praised, and he's worthy to be worshipped. All three of those. And I trust that we would all agree with that tonight. God is worthy because of who he is and because of what he has done. Now here he's also described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So you see, in the, in the first phrase, we have the direction of us expressing blessing toward God. We're worshiping him. We're saying he's worthy to be praised. But now it turns around and says, why is he worthy to be praised? Because he's blessed us. He's bestowed favor upon us. Now, this is not self-serving. This is just the way Paul does it. One reason that Paul praises God, one reason is that he's blessed us. And while material blessings are wonderful, and none of us want to give them up, do we? I'm glad I was born in the United States. I traveled to some places that I really am glad that I don't live there, frankly. And it's primarily because of material poverty, not because of spiritual poverty. But that's just because I'm a big baby when it comes to stuff like that. And you probably would be too if you were in that situation. Maybe some of you wouldn't. But while material blessings are wonderful, the blessing that is mentioned here, this particular blessing, this bestowment of favor, if you will, is spiritual in nature. In the verses to come, Paul will outline many of the spiritual blessings to which he refers here. Things like election, foreordination, or preordination, adoption, and so forth. But it all comes back, all these are going to come back to our salvation. That's the greatest spiritual blessing. And what material blessing, what, what would you have to give up in order to give up your salvation? What, what material blessing could someone promise you that you would give up the spiritual blessing of your salvation? And the answer, you're all shaking your heads, there's nothing. So if there's nothing that you would give up, materially, I'm saying, materially, then what's the most valuable thing you have? The spiritual blessings. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every single one. He's, he's blessed us with everything that we need. Not just some spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Everyone. You know, most of us, being human beings, most of us focus upon the material things that we don't have. Most of our time is spent day by day thinking about what we don't have. You know, either, and it may be, listen, 
I, I don't have, my liver's not functioning properly, my back's not functioning properly, my knees are not well, so it could be some physical thing like that. It could be a, a companionship issue. You know, I don't have the friends that I want to have, or uh, I, don't have a, I want a spouse, I don't have a spouse, I have a spouse, I don't want a spouse. <laughs> you know, now, not me, but, but, uh, but I just say we, we always want what we don't have. And here Paul tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And we've already, I think we've determined that those are the greatest blessings that we can have. You're all wealthy. I am a wealthy man. If you want to put me standing next to, to Bill Gates, I'm going to take me. And it's not because I don't like Bill Gates. It's because I, I have no indication he's a believer at all. I mean, that's, I mean, I would, if you have indication otherwise, please let me know. But I just I try and try and try. I can't find anything that even hints that. So who's really wealthy? You or Bill Gates. One of these days you're going to die and go to heaven. Bill's not. All his money's going to stay back here, unless, and let's hope that this is the case, unless he turns to Christ at some point. Same with Warren Buffett. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I've never given any hint if he is. They certainly don't use their money for Christian causes. They use their money for things, that, things like maybe not so Christian causes sometimes. But even though we focus on what we don't have from a, from a material point of view, God has provided everything we need, both physically and spiritually. You may say, I would like a whole lot more health. Well, that's what you'd like, but it's not necessarily what you need. He knows exactly what you need. He's already given it to you. He's already given it to you. We are rich. We are rich beyond our own imaginations, and this is not just some sort of parlor game I'm playing with you. This is the truth. And if we realize that, all the things that he says later here, you, get, you, might, you might want to. I don't want you to do it because I don't want to start getting accused of being one of these other kind of church. You might just inside say, wow, isn't that great Amen. You know, like, actually, at the end of that, I want to go, yes, <laughs> he is my king. I appreciate that very much. He has given us everything. And these blessings are from the heavenly realm. And they can be summed up in one phrase, and guess what it is. Here we go again, in Christ. This phrase that we were introduced to last week, in Christ. This is an important theological phrase for Paul. Being in Christ means being in a personal position and union with him. In personal position and union with him. It means being in the body of Christ. It means being positionally sanctified, if you prefer the theological terminology. You see, here's what I want to close with. We were all born in Adam. Remember that from our study of Romans? We were all born in Adam. And we were associated with Adam with his rebellion with the fall and the subsequent spiritual death. We were all born in Adam. But now Paul says, as those who are believers, now he's talking to believers here. This letter is written to believers. But those who, have, who are believers, who have, who have trusted him, realize that God is worthy to be praised because he's given us all these incredible blessings, and these blessings are in Christ. And now we're associated with Christ and his obedience and his eternal life. And everything that he has, we're associated with. Again, who's wealthy? You're wealthy. You're wealthy with wealth beyond any description. You once were in Adam associated with sin and death. Now we're in Christ, and this is where these blessings flow from. We're in Christ associated with obedience and life. That's great. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are eternally grateful that you sought us and you saved us and you 
Keep us by your grace on a daily basis. You are worthy to be worshipped. You are worthy to be praised. May we do it not only with our lips and with our voices, but may we do it with every aspect of our lives. May we praise you daily. And we we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.